Good morning. It's great to have all of you here this morning, and I really, 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 really want to thank everybody who participated in decorating our property in our church uh, last week. Sherry, thank you for your leadership and helping to get all of that done. Thank you to all of you who stayed. Um, the place looks great. And I came in Friday. I'd been bear hunting this past week, and so I came in Friday to... I made a special trip to just to come in and check and see how everything looked, and I was just really thrilled. So thank you. Uh, did, did not get a bear, but you know I'll get one someday. You know, but anyway, I saw some tracks 300 yards from where we were staying, but I didn't see any tracks and a half hour later where we were hunting. So you know, it's they were probably playing backgammon on the front porch while we were gone, and uh, that's just how it goes. But in any case, uh, I'm glad to be back. And uh, also, in particular, if you get a chance to drive by and see the lights that, that Jeff put up around this church at night, they're just splendid. They just look, you can see them from outer space. Um, they just look great. So anyway, thank you so much uh, for everybody for that. And then we really do look forward to a great Advent season, do we not? And we, we are doing some special things. Uh, we had some installation uh, delays with our bells that we're going to be able to ring Sunday morning and the music that we're going to play during Advent. So uh, we, we got our, our wire in from California. So that should tell you everything you should need to know why the wire was late. And, um, and so that's, you know, uh, but we'll have that up this week. And so hopefully when you come next Sunday, you'll, you'll hear church bells. And uh, when you drive by in the evening, you'll hear... Christmas music. So uh, we're really excited about that. Really would encourage you to invite, weather permitting, to our um, to come to our uh, live nativity thing that we're doing, and also our um, our service of lights. That should be really a wonderful uh, thing too. And actually, I want to thank Sean Doyle for the leadership that he provided for that because he really uh, he and I sat down together and he and we mapped it out. And so he's going to be leading that. And so I really appreciate uh, it was his idea, and uh, I really I think I think you could sell it. I think uh, that you know why nobody ever thought about having a service of lights for Christmas season uh, is beyond me. So really, um, just our Christmas Eve service looks great. Uh, invite some people. We're going to have a nice uh, a a nice reception afterwards where we have just tons of cookies, and it's just a wonderful time. So if you can, please make sure that you can be there for that as well. So, everything looks great, and will be great, so thank you again. Well, I'm starting this uh, series on um, the major characters of uh, the biblical story. You know, every story uh, has certain elements or components to it. So when you tell a story, if it's a good story then, or narrative, then it's going to have certain things that are a part of it. And so basically, when you, when you think about it, there's got to be a plot. So the who, what, where, and why of what's going on in that story is told, and it fills the plot out. So when we talk about the nativity story, there is a plot. There are, there are people who, it's the who, and the what, and the where, and the why. And so we will be unpacking that over the course of this Advent season. And then there are characters. Who are the major characters in a plot? And you have primary characters and you have secondary characters. 
And third, uh, you know, pe people who, uh, who, who provide only a supportive role, but uh, we're going to be talking about the primary characters in the nativity story. Who were the main players in this particular story and why were they important? And then there's the setting. And this is the part that oftentimes gets missed in the nativity story, the setting and the significance and the depth and the, the richness of the setting behind this particular story. And so I will be spending a little more time on that uh, in conjunction with, with my talking about angels as well. So um, the setting is really important. Um, and when you understand the setting, let me just say it this way, the more you understand this, the historical setting of the nativity story, the less romantic, um, the less cutesy the nativity story is. So, and that's important. That's important. Because the more cutesy and the more romantic the nativity story is, the easier it is to not take it seriously. And to relegate it only as a story that somebody made up. So we don't want to do that. We want to understand the setting. Why was it important that Jesus come to earth as a God-man? Why was that important? And then usually <clears throat> in every story there is, there are, there, there's conflict. And so, uh, you know, in this nativity story there is conflict. And there are, there are all kinds of conflicts, some of which we will touch upon today. And some we will touch upon when we talk about Herod and the Magi. So, uh, and then there's a theme in every good story. Like, what's the main point? Why was it important that Jesus come as a God-man? Why was it important that he came incarnationally? Why was it crucial that a perfect God come in the form of a temporal incarnational in the flesh human being why was that important and so um, <clears throat> and so this also is a part of the story and uh, we will be getting to that a little more later on in this particular series does this help set it up a little bit so that you understand the fullness of what we're trying to get to now the word advent means the coming or the arrival of so when we talk about Advent, it's the coming or the arrival. It's the story of the coming of Christ the King, the arrival of Christ the King, especially about a birth in a particular place and the conditions and circumstances that surrounded it. So here are the primary major characters of this particular story. Now, some might include Zechariah. <clears throat> For this series, I'm, I'm not including Zechariah um, just because I need to contain it within four weeks. But in this particular four-week series, we're going to be talking about the messengers from God who are the angels. The angels really play a significant role here. And who the angels are uh, is very telling as well. So... 
Um, we're going to be talking about Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. Uh, they are obviously primary characters in this story. And then we're going to be talking about the humble and unpretentious shepherds. So now I can't get to it today, but when I talk about the shepherds as part of the setting in the future in three weeks, you understand that, that, that the significance of the shepherds being chosen for the angels to appear and to be invited to go see the Messiah, um, it's rather remarkable, particularly given the setting and the time and the period in which this happened. <clears throat> and then finally, we're going to be talking about the aristocratic uh, and wise Magi and King Herod. I don't have King Herod there, but we're going to be talking about him as well and that encounter that they have with Herod. So, but the primary focus will be on um, the Magi. And let me just say that, you know, you, really you can't make this stuff up. That, that you would include the shepherds who socially lived at the bottom of the rung. I mean, the only ones who were lower would be prostitutes, tax collectors. But the shepherds socially were the lowest of the low. And uh, the irony was, without the shepherds, you could not make the temple work because they provided all the animals that had to be sacrificed. And yet, because they were working with animals all the time, they were ceremonially unclean so they could never worship in the temple. So they provided the animals for the temple, but they could never be in the temple because they were always ceremonially unclean. But on the, the other book end of that, is that in this story, the aristocratic and wise magi are included. So you would think that, well, I could see why God would show favor to the poor and the socially marginalized, but he clearly he shows favor to the wise aristocratic magi who, I would just say, you, you could not be a magi without being wealthy because you could not afford the kind of education that they got. They were the world's leading astrologers. So God includes on the sort of on the demographic end economically both kinds of people. It's very telling. The story is very telling in that regard. So but I'm getting a little ahead of myself in that regard. I think that a primary theme in the Advent season, always ought to come from something like Isaiah 9-2. And so I'm going to work off of this particular biblical theme this morning from Isaiah 9-2. And really, in your Bibles, if you highlight or anything like that, or you, you really ought to highlight this part. Because again, this was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. There's no disputing that. This was a text that was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. So Isaiah says the following. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So I'll say, I'll read it again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Now this is all very poetic. You have these very powerful symbols of light, of light and darkness that are, are used. And, and that particular kind of symbolism you, you can find throughout scripture. And in particularly in the book of Isaiah, you will find those particular themes. And so it is presented in such a way that the people who lived in darkness, that there's an ominousness to this. That it's not good. That it's a terrible situation. But those people who live in darkness have seen a great light. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in, like I, 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 remember, I remember one time when I was doing, uh, as a youth minister, I was doing this camp up in Lake Michigan. And uh, I was out on the dunes. And if you go back enough from the, the, the lake in Lake Michigan, you get into these woods. And I got back into the woods. And sometimes the sun falls hard there. Uh, pretty fast, and I found myself in the woods, and I could not see my hand in front of my face. So I'm in the middle of the woods, in these dunes, and I have to find my way out. Couldn't see, could not see my hand in front of my face. It was that dark. Have you ever been in that kind of darkness before? And so when you're in that kind of darkness, <clears throat> Your mind can play all kinds of tricks on you about what's in the darkness with you, okay? Where you might end up in that darkness because you can't see. I mean, all of those kinds of things. Now, nobody's asking me, how did I, how did I find my way out, right? I found my way out because the coastline goes north and south on my left and on my right, if I listen very carefully, I could hear the hum of tires on a road. So I had a choice. I could either, I could either go for the waves that I could hear in the, in the distance, or I could go towards the tires on the, on the road. So that's what I did, and I found my way out. But if I hadn't heard those things, I might, have, I might still be there. Who knows? But So these people who live in dark, deep darkness also see a light, a great light. It's not just a light. It's a great light. It's a great light. It's magnificent. It's huge. And it gives the impression that it blows back, it pushes back the darkness that they are in. So those who, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, so it's not ju just darkness, but it's deep darkness. It's even worse than darkness. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Now, take this text and picture the shepherds and the angels appearing before them. We're, and, and I think that we're going to read part of that this morning. Where these angels, um, these shepherds are out in the darkness, in the field at night. <clears throat> and that's deep darkness. So it's literal darkness, physical, literal, physical darkness that the shepherds found themselves in. But the shepherds were also, because of the nature of who they were as humans and because of how they were regarded by the religious establishment, they were in deep darkness 
spiritually. And this great light shone upon them. So when you read the nativity story, darkness and evil is always a part of the setting. It is always a part of the backdrop behind it. It is always. And what you have then is that you have this kind of confluence between darkness being the back, the, the, the back, the, the setting in the background, and then these angels of light. So there's this confluence of these two things that take place. Now I just want to talk a little bit about the biblical metaphor of darkness and the biblical metaphor of light, just for a second, because this is part of the setting. This is, this is why the nativity story is not cutesy. It's not romantic. It's not Jesus in this pile of soft hay or straw and the cattle just swinging their tail and moving softly in this bright golden, this little golden lamp in the background. You can picture it that way if you want. Jerry, would you want to, and, and, and uh, uh, would you want to have, the, to be the father of your children as you are raising them or birthing them in the barn? Stacy, would you want that? Nothing romantic about that, is there? So it's harsh. It's difficult. The God of the universe sends his son, who sets aside so much of who he is as God, so that it can be contained in this little body of a human baby, born in a place that was ceremonially unclean, dark, dirty, but on our behalf. So the biblical metaphor of darkness ought to be understood in these kinds of ways. Darkness is always associated with the evil one named Satan, always, always associated with the evil one, Satan. He is the person who lives in darkness. It's always associated with sinfulness and brokenness. Darkness is always a metaphor for sinfulness and brokenness. Darkness is always connected to lostness and confusion. So when you, when you are dark of mind, you are confused. You can't see like you need to see. Darkness is associated with deception and evil deeds that are hidden. So there's a reason why a lot of crime takes place at night. Because criminals can be better hidden at night. It's always associated with fear and hopelessness. Some of us have experienced abject fear and hopelessness. And what you see in your mind's eye is not light. You see darkness. You can't see your way ahead or your way out of what it is that you are in. Darkness is associated with vulnerability and helplessness. And darkness is associated with judgment, death, and destruction. And I can promise you that those shepherds who were on the hillside in the dark experienced all of these kinds of things 
felt all of these kinds of things. Because in that time and in that place, if you were poor and if you were impoverished, and not only in that place and time, but throughout the world, throughout the world during that time, if you were impoverished, it meant that God or the gods were judging you. You were not in, they were, you did not find their favor if you were impoverished. If you were wealthy, if you were powerful, then it was because they believed God's favor rested upon you. So if you were a, a shepherd on the hillside tending sheep, you were being told on a regular basis, you live that way because God is judging you because of some sin in your life or some sin in your parents' life. So that would, that would have been a part of their thinking on some level in every way. So to live in darkness means to be blinded to our sin and to the ways of God. And you know, in our culture today, we're not comfortable with this kind of language. This offends many people to think that we... that that sin can be and ought to be seen as being in darkness. That if there is any sin at all in our culture, um, and that's, you know, that's, uh, that's disputed. So people aren't sinful, they're just broken. Right? I mean, that's how they see it. The biblical metaphor of light. Light is always associated with a holy God. So anytime God is depicted in the scriptures, he is surrounded by light. And that light is blinding. So if you were to read in the book of Revelation about how Jesus is described, that text where he talks about the sword that is in his mouth, another metaphor, that, that, that he was so that he was so bright, it burned your eyes. You could barely look upon him. So light is always associated with the holy God. Light is always associated with purity and goodness. Light is always associated with direction and purpose. You can see not only where you're going, but why you're going. So light is always associated with that. Light is always associated with openness and goodness and illumination. It's associated with confidence and hope. When you have hope, isn't your heart lightened? I mean, if you are in despair, things seem to be dark. You're in shadow. But if you have hope, you come out of the shadow and you see things differently. Light is associated with wholeness and healing. And light is associated, is associated with forgiveness, life, and shalom, that is peace. To live in the light means to be freed from the bondage of sin, to our bondage to Satan. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, whether you believe it or not, you are in bondage to Satan. And it is an already and not yet thing. So right now, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit does not live in you, Satan has control over certain areas of your life. And it's only by God's common grace 
that keeps him from having absolute control over every area of your life. But when you die, apart from Christ, believe me when I say, you will be in bondage to Satan. And that's why the nativity is so important. Because with Christ in our life, that bondage is never a possibility again. Light is associated with confidence and hope, wholeness and healing, forgiveness, life and shalom. And so to live in the light means to be freed from the bondage of sin, our bondage to Satan, to be absolved of our sin. Just a, a tiny little example. How many of us have wronged somebody? And when we, when we came to terms with the fact that we wronged somebody and we sought their forgiveness and they forgave us, what did it feel like to be absolved from the wrongness that you did to them? Was it freeing? Was your heart enlightened? Of course it was. To live in the light means to be spared eternal separation and death. To live in the light means to live in the presence of God in an already and not yet sense. If, if you know Christ is your Savior, then you are in the presence of God because the Holy Spirit lives within you. And then at some point when we leave this world and go on to the next, we live fully in the presence of God. And we can live fully in the presence of God because of the work that Christ does on our behalf beforehand. So darkness and light are primary metaphors in the, in the nativity story into which the angels are inserted as angels of light. The nativity as experienced... So when we, we have to understand that the nativity is experienced by many as a kind of a romantic and sentimental thing. But understand, Christ came as a human baby to begin his duel with evil and to die on our behalf. Christ came to become responsible for all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment. That was the beginning of his great work on the cross. I understand that to many people, and even to some of you, maybe this sounds strange and even primitive. Because we live in this world that chooses now to see things very differently. They don't see religion as being a means for the salvation of humankind. They don't see religion as a way in which we can improve ourselves to the point that we can save ourselves from those things that um, detract from us or that harm us or that kill us. Religion for them is not that. Worldwide, worldwide, the sentiment and belief is the only hope for humankind and their salvation cannot be found in any religion, but only in the government and the state. This is something that has taken on incredibly new prominence in the last decade or so. 
There are conversations in Europe, even almost as I speak here, of leaders in Europe talking about the only way to make this world better is a one-world government. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. You can Google it and find it in a matter of seconds who those characters are, who those people are, but their fundamental belief is religion, the only part that religion plays is <clears throat> bringing maybe peace to you, possibly helping you to become a better person, but it absolutely possesses no extrinsic or intrinsic ability to save you or to save humanity. This is fundamentally rejected in every institution that makes up our culture today, aside from the church. It is rejected in pop culture. It is rejected in the media. It is largely rejected in most of our government. It is rejected in higher education. It is rejected. Now, you may, you, you may think, well, uh, what's the big deal? I am saying to you that just 50 years ago, that was not the case. And for the preponderance of this nation's history, the Judeo-Christian worldview dominated the way people thought, and everyone, whether they were a believer or not, had this sense in which religion was the means for the salvation of humanity, the Christian faith in particular. But I want to say that in many ways, it was no different than in the ancient world. People certainly were more religious back then, but it was the state that determined how people lived and what people could do and how they could think and how they could behave. It was the state then, back then, that sought in every way possible to be as omnipresent, as omniscient, and as omnipotent as they could possibly be. It's no different today. We just do it better today than what they were able to do back then. And it's how, it's how people see things today, and it's how we have been taught to see things today, that we should understand that darkness today is no less than what it was back then. Isaiah also said in chapter 520, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Did you know, according to this Boston University medical professional, that a child in utero can know whether they are male, female, or other. Did you know that Boston University is a major university in our country that a medical professional there said that the child in a woman's womb can know whether they are male, female, or other. Did you know that it's perfectly normal to wake up one day and say, it's okay, um, I think today I will be a female, if you're a male. 
And if you're a female, you could wake up and say, I'm a male. And the next day you could wake up and say, man, but you know, today I think I feel differently about that. I think I'm going to be the opposite. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who change things that are universally known to be true to be something absolutely other than what they are. Did you know that in the university today that the discussion is men, by and large, are no longer pedophiles or fatophiles. They are just younger persons attracted. So I'm not in any way I am not in any way trying to be political with you. I am simply describing the culture in which we live. In the same way that the prophets described the culture in which they lived, in the same way that Jesus went after certain parts of the culture in which he lived, and the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles... The perception is that when we think about darkness is that it always, it always seems to manifest itself in like really big and significant sort of ways, you know? Like we're waiting for some big shoe to drop when in reality that's not how it works. C.S. Lewis said this, I live in the managerial age in the world of the administration. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. I don't know if you know anything about Charles Dickens, writer, poet from the 18th century, 1800s, lived most of the 1800s. His contemporary was Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, which I got to see this past Wednesday, which was a magnificent thing. Everybody should put that on their bucket list if you can. But all of the evil that was done in that time was really through the administration, through business, through government. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean carpeted, warmed and well-lidded offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. And so we should all be very careful when we are told that evil only manifests itself in things that look immediately to be horrific, when in reality, a lot of those horrific things that we see had their starting point in places like this. I want to say more about that, but I don't have time. There was an author named Hannah Arendt who referred to her studies 
in the German concentration camps as the banality of evil. She was a German-American political theorist and in her book expressed the concept of the banality of evil. Her thesis is that the great evils in history generally and the Holocaust in particular were not executed by fanatics or sociopaths, but by ordinary people who accepted the premises of, the, of their state and therefore participated in with the view that their actions were normal. In other words, what she's saying is that the great evil that exists in our world today happens because very normal, common people make it happen. It's not these evil figures just. It would be impossible for these great historical evil figures to pull anything off. It was bookkeepers, it was accountants, it was teachers who ran the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. So the angels then are important then and they are important now because the angels are messengers who came to share about the light of Christ that was enduring then and that should be enduring today. And that light should change our life as it changed their life. It, it's worth noting, by the way, as we, as, we, as we kind of switch now and talk about angels with darkness as that backdrop, that it was a fallen angel who was responsible for the fall of man. It was the fallen angel who was responsible for the for fallen man. And um, that fallen angel sometimes has been referred to as the prince of darkness. So we get this darkness theme again. John Milton, if any of you read Paradise Lost in high school, that phrase, the prince of darkness, was his phrase. In that great hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, this is one of the enduring refrains. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage will not endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that little word is Jesus. So it was Satan who caused the horrible state in which those shepherds and other people found themselves in the first century. And it is Satan who continues to cause the terrible situations that we find in our world today. That he works out of darkness and he wants his darkness to be pervasive over the whole of the world. But we ignore that darkness because of denial, distraction, and through ignorance. The reality and ideas associated with darkness, Satan, and death are not popular, and they are not popular to our peril. So what are angels? Angels, anglos, means messenger. There are good and there are bad angels. And there's a hierarchy of angels. And one phrase that we read sometimes in the scriptures is the angel of the Lord. 
and he is usually an archangel. The angel most prominent in the story of the, of the nativity is an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel means stands in the presence of God. Angels are not only messengers, but creatures of great power, presenting themselves in the gloria, I'm sorry, in the gloria or doxia of God, which implies blinding light. So when the shepherds experience the angels in the darkness of their night, in the darkness of their souls, it probably looked maybe sort of like this, but even more, more brilliant, more splendid, more ominous, more terrifying. It was, it, they were creatures of immense power who had, who were haloed by the doxia, the glory of God. The word doxia means splendor, brightness, of the moon, sun, stars, magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, grace, majesty, a thing belonging to God. When the shepherds saw the angels appear to them in the, in the dark of night, they experienced a person and persons who were, who were enshrouded with splendor, who were as bright as the sun. Now you picture this. Again, I wonder what it would be like for me if I went back to being stuck in the woods in, in that kind of darkness and the angel, an angel of God or angels of God appeared to me with that kind of light, just eviscerating the, 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 the darkness that was surrounding me. And so now I was only in that, just a wash in that kind of holy light. What would that do to me? How terrifying that must have been on one hand and how utterly fascinating it must have been on the other. But here's a question. Why did the angels appear to the shepherds at night? I mean, really, if you wanted to be thoughtful about Mary having a new baby, most mothers I know, once they get the babies down for night uh, to sleep, God help you if you wake up that baby again, right? Because only God could help you if you wake up that baby uh, once you get them down to sleep. But the angels appeared at night. And they appeared at night for a very important reason. Because they wanted to demonstrate how the light of God destroys the surrounding darkness. That even as they were physically in that darkness, and even as they were experiencing the spiritual darkness in their hearts, these angels showed up, an angel of the Lord, and then other angels, and they appeared in the glory of God, implying this doxia, this splendid light, as bright as the sun. It was a very strong, very powerful, symbolic message about the light of God and how that light destroys the darkness in our lives. So it was both symbolic, it was didactic, that is teaching, 
They wanted to teach the, the, the shepherds and those who saw what the light of God does. It was prophetic. It was the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2 and Isaiah 60 verses 1-3. through 3. This is another passage in the Old Testament that you ought to have underlined. Isaiah 60 verses 1-3. through 3. Arise. So you can just see this text at work. They would have heard this text many times. You can just see it. These angels appear and they had, I'm sure they were thinking at some point, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. How could they miss that text? I'm sure they didn't. And then later on, when the Magi showed up, aristocratic wise men, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. All of this was going on 600 years before the birth of Christ. This text existed and was taught for generations as a part of Judaism. So when we think about the angels, light, and the five nativity characters called to be light, what do we see? Well, I'm including in this slide Zechariah and Elizabeth because Gabriel appeared to Zechariah as he went in. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember what festival it was that Zechariah went in to celebrate when he heard Gabriel speak to him about his son John being born, do you remember? It was the atonement. It was the holiest uh, festival on the Jewish calendar. In fact, when Zechariah went in there, they tied a rope around his ankle so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, should he have a heart attack and die, they could drag him out because only the high priest was allowed in there once a year to offer sacrifice, the at-one-ment of humanity back to God. And that's when Zechariah receives this message that he, his wife is going to have a son, and that son is going to be a person who uh, announces the Messiah. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, the father of Jesus, all had angelic experiences, the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, and then possibly, possibly the Magi as well. We don't, it doesn't say that specifically, but possibly, especially when they were in Bethlehem and they received a message from the Lord to leave by a different way because Herod was seeking a way to uh, kill the Messiah that they'd come to see. He said, uh, you know, that the Lord spoke to them in a dream. So, it, so, by the way, that angel was Gabriel. And he said to Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, uh, you are to give him a name John. He's never to take wine, which means that he would be a, Nazare a Nazarite. 
and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what he was supposed to do. And then the same archangel Gabriel appeared to Mary. And her name, she was a virgin and her name was Mary and she was highly favored, which really had to set her head spinning because she was a pauper. How can that be possible? I'm, how can I be highly favored? She was to give birth to a son and name him Jesus. And Mary's response was, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Now, I don't have time to go into it here, but I'm just saying to you that in Judaism, if you were a young girl and you got pregnant in your community and you were not married, that was very problematic. So I'll talk more about that in the future. So who is this archangel Gabriel? It is significant that in each of the four biblical appearances of Gabriel, there are only four that are mentioned specifically, Gabriel was connected in some way to the implementing of the promise concerning the Messiah. Gabriel was always associated with the promise or the announcement of the Messiah. That's why it may not, you can't say it's, you can't say it in a, in a, a, with any kind of finality, it may not be inappropriate to say, Gabriel might have been there with the Magi. Might have been. Because he seems to have been the archangel that was associated with all of the Messiah prophecies and experiences. In extra-biblical literature, we read about Gabriel as being an archangel, that he was venerated as supreme over all other powers, that he was included as the Lord's glorious ones, that he was one of four angels in God's presence during the prayers of the martyrs to end lawlessness, and that he was described as seated on the left hand of God. Now, you think, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Why is that important? If the most important thing that you can think of needs to happen, whom do you trust that to? If you want to send a message about how something is really, really, really significant, do you send some lackey? Or do you send somebody who represents the best in the best possible way who you are and what your attentions are about? We all know in the political world, for example, that if you, if you send a representative from your government to another government, the higher that government official is, the more significant the message. God sent Gabriel. He sent the best of the best to convey his message of salvation and hope to the world that lived in deep darkness. And he sent them at night. Says an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. Maybe it was Gabriel. Then may, he made his pronouncement and then after that a whole host of angels showed up. God sent the very best. He sent the highest of the highest of his representatives to those shepherds. And they were shepherds. I mean, he didn't send 
some lower angel to lower people on the social strata. So what does that say about how God feels about you and me? About how he feels about those shepherds? So God sent Gabriel to Joseph because Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was thinking about divorcing this uh, or, or separating himself from Mary because she was pregnant. But because of the appearance of Gabriel, he changed his mind and he took Mary home to be his wife. And they named him Jesus, which means to save people from their sins. And then God sent angels to the shepherds and maybe Gabriel along with them and told them not to be afraid. Good news of great joy for all the people. And he goes to shepherds. He didn't go to King Herod. He didn't go to the socially elite. He went to the lowest of the low. So these are the angels in the, in the nativity story. And in the backdrop is in the setting of this story is a world where people in a very visceral sort of way felt the deep darkness that was in their lives. You and I are largely anesthetized to that, but it's still there. It's still there. Still 30, between 30 and 40 million people in slavery. More people in slavery today than there ever have been in the history of the world. You think, well, what about all the advancements that we've made? There isn't one major advancement like the Internet. You think, wow, look at the Internet. It's just, I mean, it's just done so much for us. Look at all the things that you can learn. And look at all the things that you can put on there that you shouldn't learn. Don't allow yourself to be anesthetized. Allow the messengers, allow the light of God in the same way that light appeared to those shepherds back then, allow that same kind of a light to appear before you now to show us, to illuminate the darkness in our lives and in our world and to make us wise and to respond accordingly. These are major characters and it's glorious that God would use them and send them in the way that he did. He's saying to us, you are significant to me. I care about you and I love you. And really, I'm not only sending my firstborn son, but I'm sending the best of my angels to convey that truth and that sentiment to you. Leave here today knowing that regardless of our station, wherever we are in the darkness of this world, that his light can penetrate it and make our lives and this world a better place.